Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. Look, look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Welcome aboard, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is hour two of the program. We're going to get in a lot of different stuff. We're going to start out with an interview that I recorded with former Major League outfielder Dave Schneck. And Dave has a very good story. And, you know, for those of us who are Mets fans that go back to the 70s, obviously I don't, but I'm sure a lot of Mets fans do. Dave Schneck was the heir apparent for Willie Mays and came up, had a really good first game. He hit a home run, I think, in his first game. He had a game-saving catch in his second game, had three hits in the next game. And this is in 1974, right after Willie Mays retired. And you think, hey, maybe you have the next center fielder that's going to be there for the next couple of years. It obviously didn't work out that way. He was uh, kind of platooning with Mays in the 73 season. Of course, the 73 Mets ended up making a World Series, losing to the Oakland Athletic. Dave Schneck will always live in Mets lore in regards to his place in the team's history. A guy who was, was, was a very good player for a couple of years, but never really got it together. And uh, 1974, the year that he got the job as the Mets center fielder. He was up amongst the league's leaders in hitting in April and just couldn't get it together. He ended up spending the next several seasons in the minor leagues. He was traded to the Phillies. He ended up going over to the Cubs, and unfortunately, it never worked out for him. We're going to continue right now with the PBS On the Road series, something that I've gotten into. We started out Pennsylvania with the likes of guys like Kurt Simmons, Carl Dozer, and we're going to keep moving it on with an interview I recorded with Dave Schneider out in Pennsylvania. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with the former Mets outfielder. John Pielli, I'm happy to be joined by former Mets outfielder Dave Schneck. Dave, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Hey, no problem. Hey, you started out as a pitcher. Tell us a little bit about the story about you know transitioning from being a pitcher to a position player and what caused the change. Uh, spring training first year, I was listed as a pitcher. Of course, broke my collarbone in spring training. Down for a fly ball during bat practice. Wound up sitting on the bench and getting a transfer down to uh, actually more than a team up to Durham, North Carolina. Sat in the bench in the Indian Reserve. Went down to Florida in in July, I'm sorry, June of that year, and Whitey Herzog was the form director at the time, and I just told him one day, Whitey, I don't want to pitch anymore, I'm going to be an outfielder. So he said, go ahead. So I went to the outfield, and that was it. 
Now, you always did you always consider yourself as good of a hitter as a as a pitcher, or was that was that something that you, you did because you thought it was best for you? Well, looking back, I probably was a better pitcher. <laughs> and uh, you know, of course, you end up uh, serving in uh, Vietnam for a couple of years, right? That's the '69 and '70 season. Right. Um, you know, it was pretty pretty serious stuff. You ended up in one case losing losing all part of your platoon in a battle, right? Yeah. I got drafted in the army. <laughs> After my honeymoon in seven April Fool's Day, we got in a contact and we lost about half the platoon. Uh, that's just days of old. Uh, I generally don't talk about it to be honest with you. Uh, no, it's gotta be a tough moment and you know, the you know the bottom line is you know you end up fighting for your country, you do you know, you do what you gotta do and you end up returning to baseball and you know, you start you know, battling through the minor leagues as an outfielder with the Mets and 1972 comes, you make your major league debut. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience and what it felt like to be up in the majors for the first time. Well, just to go back a little bit, when I was in Vietnam, uh, I actually got a, I got a letter from home, and it was in the Star of the Stripes that Ed Charles was released by the New York Mets to make room for Dave Schnack on a 40-man roster, which floored me, because I wasn't expecting that. You know, I got a, basically a year, not even a year behind me, and I'm on a major league roster. I come out of Vietnam, come right to spring training, Bill Hodges was a manager, and I didn't know. I couldn't catch a fly ball. You know, I didn't know whether to run in, run back. I was nervous in a big league camp of guys I didn't even know. I knew one person, Tim Foley, who was my uh, my roommate back in rookie ball before I left for Vietnam. So I didn't know anyone. <laughs> but, and you know, you end up uh, you end up you know hanging around with the Mets. You know, you make your debut in '72. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, you, know, you were obviously a center fielder. Right. Well, I come out of Double A ball at the time. We were playing down in Amarillo, Texas. I'm leading the league at home runs at the time. Just having a great year. You know, yeah. it's a Double A ball and the transition from Double A to the big league. Isn't a drastic transition? Double uh, A Double A separates boys and men from the boys. Once you come out of A ball, Double A's tough. I get called up in '72. Go up. Hit a home run, my third at bat, win the game. You know, the rest was history. The rest was downhill, basically. Yeah, not only that, but the next next game you make a game-saving catch. You rob Jerry Morales of a of a base hit, and then the next game you go three for four. Right. So at that time, you you know you probably you probably think, hey, maybe I'm on to something. And obviously, being New York, you know, every, all the Cowboys, everybody's like, hey, this is the next you know next best thing. He's going to be the next Willie Mickey's. That's called adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> And of course, you know, you end up, uh, you know, going through that, you struggle, you end up going back down, going back up. But after the 1973 season, or the beginning of the 74 season, Willie Mays retires. Right. Yeah, you get a chance to be the starting center fielder for the Mets. You know, at, at this point, what, what are you thinking? Are you thinking this is the start of the next five to ten years, or are you still not sure at that point? You know, I didn't think along those lines. I didn't think Don Hall. Don Hall was my roommate, and we shared center field at that point. Uh, it wasn't that thought process. Maybe it's the way baseball was back then. You just went on and did, you, you know, did what you got to do to you know, stay alive. That's all it was. I wasn't thinking ahead anywhere, except the next time bad. And, of course, you know, throughout that season, you actually get off to a pretty good start in 74. You know, the mid middle of April, towards the end of April, you're up there amongst the National League leaders. And, 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 and I'm doing real great. But, uh, no, no, I don't have the answers. Uh, what bothers me about what people say, I couldn't hit a curveball. You don't get to where it was unless you hit a curveball on all speed pitch. That's just the way it was. You just get in a funk sometimes, and it just went that way. Yeah, sometimes it just happens at the wrong time. You know, exactly. Just, you know, when you're, when you're not hitting, it's just it's something that sometimes it's unexplainable. Once again, John Piella here with Dave Schneck. 
uh, you know, after you, actually before you before you end up leaving the Mets, you know, in spring training, you end up uh, you know having a you know having either a collision or something involving Thurman Munson, which ends up hurting right. his uh, I believe his wrist yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, t- take us a little bit of back to that day and you know, describe kind of what happened. I got to be honest with you, I, c- I can't even remember what happened that day. No, I, I think about it. I, I don't know if it was a collision, it was a bat. I don't know what it was. <laughs> All I know is. He wasn't happy about the situation. <laughs> yeah, so something he ends up uh, holding back, and you know, that finds out he finds out that he really did hurt himself pretty bad in that situation. Right. But hey, you know, things happen, and he ended up getting traded from the Mets to the Phillies in a you know pretty big deal, along with Tug McGraw. I think Del Unser ends up coming over to the Mets, John Stearns, a couple other players. Um, what, what was your reaction when you were first traded? Did you do you feel you were going to get a full opportunity to play and show yourself with the Phillies? Uh, it's Yes and I know. We had just come back from. We were on a. We were actually on an airplane coming back from Japan at the time, and uh, Japan had offered me an extremely, extremely lucrative contract over there. And I basically, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And uh, I get back. We get back into New York in the JFK, and Joe McDonald, our, our, our general manager at the time, was waiting for us. So we got traded. I said, Well, I got an opportunity to go to Japan. He said, I know everything about it, David. He said, I have nothing to say. You were traded to Philadelphia. You got to talk to Paul Owens, who was the general manager of the Phillies at the time. Yeah. But I can't get a hold of the guy. I finally get a hold of him, told him my situation. He said, well, Dave, we have plans for you in Philadelphia, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, all right, I got a shot here. Well, it turns out they offered me a contract, which happened to be a third of the contract of the, what the Japan contract wow. was. But I felt pretty good. I was going to stay here. I was going to play in the big leagues. I go to spring training. Uh, I get cut the last day of camp. I went, you got to be kidding me. I went up in uh, AAA ball in, in Toledo with Jim Money, who's the toughest man in the world to play baseball for. Great, great family man, great everything, but tough to play baseball for. And that's where I wound up. And then I, I kind of just bounced around, and that was pretty much it. Hey, going back to Jim Bunning, what, 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 do we, what do you think it was that made, made him difficult to play for? <laughs> We saw a perfect game, Jim Bunny. Yeah, perfect. perfect game. And he dealt in nothing but perfection, and that's just the way he was. He was just as hard. He looked at you and he scared you. Wow. That's a better way. So he's kind of intimidating. Oh, extremely intimidating. And verbally, verbally, verbally abusive. It's <laughs> <laughs> horrible. Now, did you did you see, like, you know, was, was that something that stood out as far as this guy being maybe one of a kind like that? Or did you sense that there were other managers, even on minor league levels, that were like that? No, I didn't see. Like no. no, most of my league levels, even the big leagues, the guys are pretty cool guys. They were all good guys. Yeah. But yeah, he was he was just tough. Oh, listen, man, maybe it's maybe it's the reason you never managed in the big leagues. That's, a, that's the exact reason. That's no question. That's not even because in debate. regards to baseball knowledge. I mean, I've heard I heard him speak before. I mean, he knows he knows his stuff. Oh my God, yeah, he was a great guy. But boy, just you don't want to play for the guy. And anybody that played for him said the same thing. Great guy, but you don't want to play for him. When he when he when he stepped between the lines. He was just a different person. Yeah, very true. Now, you, you end up uh, moving around a couple other different teams. Did you ever feel like you ever got a real fair shot to get back to the big leagues again? No. No? No, never felt that. And, and uh, a lot of it falls back on me, though. You know, people say you didn't get a fair shot or you, you got robbed. Bullshit. If you don't hit, you don't produce, you're not getting back. In, in your heart, you feel you're certainly good enough to be there. 
know, but today's standards, I think I can still be there because I see a lot of guys. Yeah. They're, just not, they're not that great. Yeah. But it is what it is. You know, you always feel you could have went back. I just never had the chance. Now, take us back to the time you decided to finally hang it up. Because that, that, that has to be a tough decision on your mind. You know, you're lingering around a little bit last, trying to make that decision. Actually, back then, I was 27 years old. And by standards of age, back then, 27 was old. Today, it's young of you with the iron pig. And that, that, that was actually, you were old. You went through your minor league stint, you blah, blah, blah. And I wound up in, in Denver. Uh, we just had a child. My wife went home, bought a home that year. I said, that's it, we're done. And uh, I was with the Cubs organization at the time. And uh, I just packed it in, and we're playing in Denver. Uh, my last game was in Denver. Okay. I went three for five that night. I had a face hit my last at bat up at the top of a guy named uh, Terry Tenure, left hander. Uh, he was actually a roommate of mine in another organization. Anyway, I had a base hit my last at bat. Three for five. Uh, went in the locker room, cried my eyes out, gave my gloves away, gave my spikes away, and hung them up. That was it. Yeah, it was kind of ceremonious in, a, in its own way. It was, yeah. And the guys in the locker room were really cool about it. They knew it was done. Nobody left the locker room. They all hung around. Like, I was in a bathroom stall for about 10, 15 minutes from crying. I came out, and that was it. I walked away. Now, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned you know, a roommate of yours. Is there, is, is there any other stories that come to mind in regards to people that you roomed with, you know, while you played either the major league level or the minors? <laughs> you don't want to know. Uh, oh, I have a room with Ray Knight. Of course. Uh, cool. uh, Don Honor's a roommate. Well, see, that, you know what? You catch me off guard here. I don't think too much. <laughs> Stories I can't tell. How's that? That's uh, right, man. I mean, it'd be, you know, one of them comes back to you and you want to share it a little bit. Back a story back to it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. And this is this is Billy Staples, of course. I, I love telling this story. Um, I was in spring training last year uh, doing doing some pieces for children, and I'm in Arizona. I'm just sitting in the stands and I'm relaxing, and a guy with uh, black curly hair sits next to me. We start chatting. I, I tell him what area of the country I'm from, and he says to me, "Do you know Dave Schneck?" And uh, I said, I know exactly who Dave Schnick is. And he says, he, he doesn't live far from you. If you run into him, tell him I said hello. And I said, well, you got to give me a Dave Schneck story. <laughs> and that, that opened the floodgates. But the best one he said is he said, you know, I'm a pitcher. My job is to get people out. And he goes, if you're walking down the mall, if you're walking down the beach, and you see um, 100 people and you're supposed to pick a ball player out, he goes, you know, you may not pick Dave Schneck out, right, walking along the mall, walking along the beach. He goes, but I'd be damned if I want to face him as a pitcher. Because that guy could play ball. And, and what it really means is in the, in the NFL, you can you can pick out a lineman or you can pick out a quarterback. In the NBA, you can pick out a center or a point guard. You can't pick out baseball. Um, the only thing I have to add to that is in high school, did it when, when did it click for you? Was it just even as a little kid? Because that's what Apodaca said. He said I was neck and hit. I was actually a sophomore in high school. I based up came high school as pitcher. I mean, I hit the ball well in high school. But I was I was 22 as a pitcher. Either year, he ran about one, struck out two an inning, no question. I look in the paper today, see guys strike out 10 a game, they get headlines. Back then, I struck out 12, 14. If I didn't have more than 12 or 13, I was mad at myself today. They don't do it in They strike out 10, they get headlines. Uh, maybe baseball wasn't as good back then. I can't answer that. But uh, high school ball, it, it, and, and leaving, it was pretty much my pitching got me where I wanted to be. 
As a matter of fact, a real quick story. In Legion Ball, my, my second last year of Legion, I went to, uh, I made it all the way to the All-Star game, Monte Erie, east against the west. And I was listening as, as a pitcher, and Buddy Matlack, and Buddy Harris, and John Matlack were pitchers also in that game. But I'm listening as a pitcher. Well, that game, it's a tight ball game. We get in like the sixth inning, and whoever was coaching us said to me, Davey said, the bases were loaded at the time. And he said, Davey, see, you hit. I said, of course I did. So this is American Legion ball. And he said, well, I got to put you in a pinch hit. Puts me in a pinch hit, hit a grand slam. Right? Come up in the top of the ninth. I got a runner into another set. The tie score, the, the score, the tie score, 8 8. Top of the ninth, right? Got a second pick, get a base hit, knock in the go ahead run. Get on first base, steal second base. Bottom of the ninth, I throw out the tie and run at the plate. Right? I guess you didn't get the MVP for the game. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it. I said, what the hell? Well, number one, I had another year to go, a Legion ball. And, and number two, I wasn't listed as a player. I was listed as a pitcher. They said they couldn't give it to me. I said, you got to be kidding me. It was the craziest game. The, the only big thing about that is they had a picture of me in the uh, next year's American Legion baseball thing. They had a picture of me sliding the home plate or doing something. So, the thing I got out of that. Uh, great stuff, man. Dave, appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. And, yeah, nice to, nice to chat with you. Hope you don't Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Dave Schneck. Sorry about the background noise. We actually recorded that interview in a diner over in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, the Nazareth Diner in Pennsylvania. But I thought we heard everything pretty good there. Great stuff by Dave. And, uh, you know, the thing that stands out is losing half of his platoon, you know, fighting first country in Vietnam, uh, something that, you know, you may never recover from. It's such a sad situation. And you give respect to all those men and women that fought in all the wars. And, you know, Dave Schneck is in a, in a situation where he's, one of few major league players that are actually out there serving their country in Vietnam. You remember World War II and you remember Korean War. So many more players enlisted or were drafted and put in. And Dave Schneck ends up, uh, you know, representing his country and, you know, ends up, you know, escaping and be, be, being alive after that and then playing in a major league. So hopefully you guys enjoy that spot with Dave Schneck. We're going to do take a quick break, get right back into the PBS On the Road series from Pennsylvania and play my interview that I recorded with former Red Sox pitcher Bob Hefner back after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-price appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! there. 
I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We've placed thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Moving on, of course, PBS on the Road Series in Pennsylvania. I got a chance to speak to a right-hand pitcher by the name of Bob Hefner, and he pitched for the Red Sox for three seasons in the 1960s and, you know, ends up having experiences with Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, struck out Mickey Mantle three times once in a game. And, you know, I really enjoyed this spot. We get into a lot of deep things with that. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League pitcher Bob Hefner, who, by the way, hit a home run, his only Major League home run, off of another Passball Show guest, Mudcat Grant. This is John Fielli. I'm here, Passball Show on the road. I'm happy to be joined at the house of former Major League pitcher Bob Hefner. Bob, thanks for having a couple minutes. My pleasure. The nickname Butch, obviously, is something that, that stuck with you. Talk a little bit about the, the origins of it, where it came from, and why it sticks with you today. Well, I had a neighbor when I lived on Gordon Street, and uh, she always invited me over to the house for dinner. I, I was on a, on the ta- I mean, uh, in Italian. I love Italian food, Pennsylvania Dutch. But I always came over to her, and she just came out and called me Butch one day. And uh, from then on, I was like, eh, maybe nine or ten years old. Uh, it stuck with me all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, is there any point that, you know, obviously we all we all get nicknames that we like or not like. Was that something that you you liked that nickname from the beginning, or is it something that more kind of became accustomed to you I, as far as being referred to as? I think more of it kind of uh, became accustomed. Okay. My parents started it. Someone, uh, my right name is Robert. Someone called me Bob. I don't answer anymore. Someone called me Butch. I know that. They know me pretty well. Someone called me Bob or Robert. I look around and he says, this guy doesn't know me that well. <laughs> no question. You, of course, came up with the Boston Red Sox. You made your debut in 1963. What what comes to your head when you first think about pitching in the major leagues for the first time and around that time frame in 1963? Well, when I was called up, I was out in uh, Seattle. My coach out there was Mel Fornell. <laughs> So I asked him a question, I said, now what should I do different? He says, hey, don't do anything different. They called you up because what you're doing, what you're doing now. 
so when I went up there, I took his advice, and uh, I was fortunate enough that when I did pick my first game, I went nine innings, which nowadays you don't see pitchers. Nowadays, nowadays you'll get nine innings out of three starts. Yeah, one of your better pitchers might get three Ds. Complete the whole year, yeah, right. they might get go nine innings. So uh, when I got to Fenway, it's like anyone else. You stand on the mound, you look around, and actually the green monster. The only other stadium I looked at is when I went to Yankee Stadium. I looked at Don Aaron. They said that Mickey Mantle almost hit the ball out. And you, when you go out there and look at right field and look up at that thing and see where he almost knocked the ball out, look, I couldn't hit that thing with a, a wedge to get the ball back out. <laughs> yeah, now you mentioned, I believe, you just said your first, your first game was at home at Fenway? Yes, against Detroit. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the, the atmosphere and the thought. I mean, obviously you hadn't pitched in a major league game yet. Your first game is at one of the most historic stadiums in all professional sports. Uh, was was that any of that on your mind once you took the mound for the first time? Well, you know what? Not really. When you get out there, you hear all these voices, and as soon as you get on the mound, you blank everything out. At least that's what I did. And uh, my catcher was Bob Tillman. I tell you, he made me feel more comfortable than anything. He used to come out because we brought up in the Eastern League and then AAA, and uh, he took me pretty good. And I listened to him and. Like I said, he knew the batters more than I did. I back then I didn't shake anything off. Like I said, hey, the catcher had more knowledge than I do. So fortunate enough, I I worked very well with him. Now, uh, do you remember? Do you remember the game, the opponent? You remember? Uh, you know, you mentioned you pitched a complete game. Yeah, I think uh, the pitcher that was against me was um, mm, God Moose or Mouse or something like that. I'm so bad on names, but. Uh, well, guy, I didn't actually know all the superstars, Al Kaline. Yeah, of course. You remember him. And uh, like I said, come names with Detroit, I'd have to look on their lineup to see. I know they had a big catcher to it. can't think of his name, but he was like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he was a, a stouty guy, too. Yeah, yeah there it is. Okay. Boy, are you good. See that? I know. I said you would have more knowledge than I would. Because like I said, I'm starting to slip. I have to write stuff on the calendar to see what I'm going to do the next day. Yeah, Bill Freehan played in the major leagues for a long time. There you go. That's the, that's the man. Yeah, and uh, you know, you end up over the next couple seasons pitching with Boston. One one game sticks out for me as far as what I you know what I'm what I'm able able to look up. A, a game you go up against Cleveland, Mudcat Grant's pitching. You, you, had a, you end up hitting a home run off of them. Yeah. You go two for two. You pitch six innings in relief. Yes. You know you didn't even start that game. Tell us, take us back to that day because I'm sure you remember it pretty well. I remember that because, like I said, my wife is with me and says it took you about. I get on the mound doing this and doing that, and actually the only thing they don't show in that thing is uh, when I hit the home run, I tied the game up. Yeah. But guess what? I get up with an L. <laughs> and my wife kept saying to me on TV, she said, it took you over an hour to run around the bases because I'm not one of the fastest guys in the world. But uh, I had a good game there. Like I said, I had luck against Cleveland. There's certain uh, in the league that you have good luck against, and there's some teams that you have bad luck against. My nightmare was Minnesota. I couldn't get them so-and-sos out for all the tea in China. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, you end you end up uh, you know during your experience in Boston, you know you have uh, you know Ted Williams was still an in instructor, associated himself with the with the Red Sox after he retired. What are your best memories of Ted Williams, and if if any interactions you had with him during that time? Well, the first year I was a uh, spring training, I got invited. I think it was '61 or '62 in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I, what I remember uh, Ted. Everyone looks up to him, you know, he just walks around, and every time he walked around, he always had this bat. And if you were sitting around doing nothing, he says, hey, rookie, he used to play what they call pepper. Yeah. There were three or four guys there, and you throw a ball. Yeah, yeah. That guy used to hit it back to you like you're wearing a guy darn bat. He had to wear a cup. He didn't wear a catch with a cup. Oh, <laughs> man, this guy didn't. He didn't fool around. And there's one thing about Ted. Uh, he didn't like a guy that thought he knew everything because he didn't know the answer before you asked him. You want to know why that ball dropped off the table, why it curved. And uh, the man had great knowledge, I swear to God. And what was the biggest thing you thought you learned from Tubbites? Stay away from him. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it came to fungo. Because I was one of those guys that used to hide. You know, in your first year in spring training, you know, I stay away from everything and tell him, you know, the coach tells you what to do, you do. But him, he's... He was like he was like he was God, you know. What I mean, he only he only when he took batting practice, he only let the, the starters like Mambo Kid, and then throw batting practice because he didn't want to give an expedition. And uh, like I said, he was the only guy I always remember about him. He always wore baggy clothing. If he wore an, uh, an extra large, he wore a double X large. Everything hung on him. His shirts were baggy. His pants were baggy, but. He walked like a lefty. You know, lefty's always walking. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's him. No, I tell you, man, he's a guy that obviously is going to stay in uh, the lore of Boston forever. And oh, definitely. And definitely. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Butch Hefner. Now, you know, another another player that was kind of iconic, maybe not to the level of Ted Williams, but still pretty well known, came up around the same time as you, and that was, of course, Carl Yastrzemski. Um, you know, a, a little bit about uh, what you remember about Carl Yastrzemski, and did you think that he would have the potential to have the career that he had at the time when you first met him and first came up with him? As a what? As a yeah. you know, well, as, as, as Yastrzemski ended up having throughout his career. You know, played till 83, a whole well, game, 500 home runs. No, not really. Uh, yes, yes, was uh, good, but uh, like I said, uh, in any game, you have your ups and downs. I used to call him Cash McCall because I used to say, hey, Cash, I mean, he's making this type of money. I'm making minimum wages. So we used to eat together, and uh, you can't take anything away from him. He's a good hitter. And uh, I don't know what else to say about him. Like I said, he performed well. He, he, I'll tell you one thing he did well is play the ball when he played left field. When that ball came off the Green Monster, he was always in front of it. Yeah, no question, he could play it better than he anybody. Yeah, he played that position better than, as good as anybody. Like I said, that ball hit the ball, playing, it was a second base. He yeah, just turned around and threw it. Absolutely. One thing that stands out is his, his ability, like you just said, to play the ball off the Green Monster. It was almost like an art that he, he went out there and was like, listen, I'm going to figure out all the aerodynamics and everything involved with this thing to play the ball off and get it in as quickly as possible. And there were a few that did it as well as he did. Yeah, because when that ball came off, you didn't know which way it went. There's so many dents in the darn thing, you don't know. It hit it, then it goes a different way. But 
he feels the things as best as I know as any other ball player. Now, you know, you, you end up uh, having a chance a little bit to pitch with uh, Dick Raddatz. And, and Dick, of course, you know, really got, got off in a certain, certain area of his career was just phenomenal. He went out there and put up some, you know, really good numbers for a short period of time. And then afterwards, you know, something happened and he just wasn't the same. What would, what would, you, what would you think was the biggest, uh, biggest thing that contributed to it? Or was that just a situation where it was just some bad luck? No, it wasn't no bad luck. Dick was my roommate for all the years I was up in Boston. He was a great roommate, super guy. The only thing I can remember, he went to spring training a year after me, or a year, it's the same year, I don't know that anymore. And Ted Williams told him in 1963, he says, young man, get all the money you can, because they're going to burn you out. And that's exactly what happened. They burned them out. No, that's a prime example of it. I was in Baltimore, and I tell you one day, I never saw a guy. There was a doublehead in Boston. And I can recall it. He went, the first game, he went seven innings. The second game, he went back and pitched another seven innings. Wow. 14 innings in one day. And we're, talk, we're talking about an era where that didn't happen. No. And like I said, they just burned them the hell out. I'm sorry. Yeah, you actually saw a lot of that that back then. You know, uh, you know, and, uh, and I, know I, keep, I keep making references in a lot of other interviews to let's say like a guy like Gene Locke or some other managers that had the tendency of just you know either, either pitching the pitchers too much or pulling them at the wrong time. And sometimes there's a there's a fine line. That you, you know, you don't want to you don't want to end up ruining somebody's career by just pitching them over a series of a couple of years, but. You know, there's also the thought of, all right, we got to win the game. If this guy is the best pitcher, you want him on the mound. I mean, that's where it is. Because after Dick, everything else was gone there. And if you threw someone else in, it was just a, sh- a long man. There was only one short man back there, and it was Raditz. And uh, he went seven, eight, nine. And after that, adios. Once again, John Pielli here with Butch Hefner now. When you know you end up believing the Red Sox after the '65 season to go to the Indians, but afterwards a, pit, a pitcher comes up uh, by, the, by the name of Jim Lomborg, and he ends up you know helping the Red Sox get to the '67 World Series. What was your your recollection of, of him? Did you think that he was going to be as good as he ended up being for that short period of time? No, I never thought he would be that good. But uh, like anything else, they hey, you get one good year, they stay with you. The whole trouble is, once you make the big leagues, you never know if you're going to stay there. You're always looking over your shoulder, who's going to take your place. And the worst thing that can happen is, you, know, you get injured, forget it. Back then, uh, what was there, eight teams, six teams? Yeah, eight teams initially. Eight teams. So, uh, like I said, like I was just a mediocre guy. So every time you went to spring training, you were worried about who you were going to have there. Now, again, mom, kid. Your starters, they were established. So naturally, the managers are going to stay with you a little longer. So I started out, my first year was only 4-9. I had some good games and some bad games. So the next year, once you get from there, you're a right-hander, you go down to the bullpen. So now when you're in the bullpen, you got to pitch every day. You have to warm up almost every day. Okay. And it takes a lot of strain out of you. And uh, the worst thing that can happen is don't get an injury. No, absolutely. Once you get an injury, you're trade bait. 
Now, I tell you, in, in hindsight, do you think that something that uh, stunted your development a little bit, going to, you know, starting to pitch relief yeah, after being a starter? Do you think that what you just mentioned about getting up, warming up every game, having a different type of routine that you were used to, you think that had any impact on, you know, your longevity throughout throughout baseball? Oh, no. It, you know, you just take it it's like anything else. When you're a starter, you know that you, you start one day, you have three days off. Yeah. It's a little different. But now in the bullpen, you got to be ready every day. And like some ball players, you know, not everyone's human. After a game, you want to go out and have some fun. But when you're in the bullpen, you better only have, uh, instead of having a, two hours of fun, you better cut it down to a half hour or an hour of fun. Otherwise, you're in deep shit. That's funny. You mentioned, you mentioned the word fun. I want you to dig in your mind right now. Tell me the craziest story that you remember, either in the clubhouse, on the road, wherever you're at, and like I said, don't don't worry about any, any words you say or grammar or anything. Just let it out. Well, it's like I said, it's like after a ball game, I remember one time in, uh, in uh, we were playing the, in the Angels. So we went out <clears throat> to get some meat, and uh, it was Raditz, Tillman, and myself. We went in this restaurant, and next to a big boy. Back then, he was like 265. And telling me, you're like 6'4", maybe 200 or something like that. And we're in there eating, and all of a sudden, we're sitting at the table, and all of a sudden, Raditz hits the floor. Like, God damn, he split the seat. Now, you're out back in Red Sox stage, you're dressed up. Suit, tie, and all yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Well, he falls down. Son of a bitch. His food's all over him. I don't know if he split his pants or not, but Dick, he had a little temper, and Someone said something, he said, let's get the hell out of here. That's not the exact words, but yeah. we got the hell out of here. I thought to myself, oh, Rumi, you did it again. <laughs> so you guys, you guys ended up, uh, you know, that was just the end of the night, or? That was the end of the night. He, <laughs> he wouldn't go anywhere else. No, he was pissed. He said, let's get back to, he went back to the room. He was pissed. So when, when you're when you're when you're on you know on the road and stuff like that, doing the travel in between cities and stuff like that, was it was it common you know night after night that you guys would go out and do stuff, or was it was there certain things that you would do differently from let's say the night before you were scheduled to pitch or stuff like that? Oh yeah, so like I said, be the starter. There's no way you're going to go out the night or the day before. Yeah, because uh, you always had bed checks back then. We had pesky. He had knocked knock on your door, and uh, if you just say, like, if I was room with Raddick, he used to knock on the door, and he says, so man, it's a coach. He answers the door, and he says, who else is in there? He wanted to see if Raddick was in. Yeah. And like I said, it's, uh, sometimes you break curfew, but, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you go to a hotel that the managers and the coaches were so smart back there. You had to, you had to enter the elevator to go up to your room. Yeah, of course. So that damn guy on the elevator, he's trying to sneak in. The manager used to give him an autograph baseball. Yeah. He just said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> he goes at breakfast the next day and Pesky would say to you, what time did you get in last night? Hmm, maybe it was 15 minutes later. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. Because every day you don't knock on your door because you're grown men. Yeah, I heard, I heard a story. I'm trying to you know, have it come back to me, but there was, uh, I think it might have been, uh, might have been Casey Stengel. That used to used to hang out in 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 some of the hotel lobbies of where where the Yankees would go would would be on the road and stuff like that, 
and he would stay out late himself, and he would be he would be there in the lobby of the hotel, and the players would come would come down, you know, thinking that you know time was up. They end up going out, coming back. He wouldn't say anything. He would just hang out hang out at the table, and he would know exactly when they left and exactly when they came back. And then you figure like a lot of you know a lot of teams you know we would try to outwit you. You figure the manager, the coaches, you know, kind of like the whole teacher thing in school. Right? We you wait till they go to sleep after they go to sleep, we'll go out. But you know, you know, a lot of a lot of people didn't do that. They have somebody just kind of being there watching, maybe not being on you, but at least in a spot to say, hey, all right, I know when you came and when you left. Because we got caught in spring training, we was in the minor leagues, so you figure the minor leagues always got to really bother you. And back then we had Don Schwal. He was six five. Yeah. Radis, like I said, six six. I'm six four. And you're in the Meyer League, so you figure, hey, I don't even get the hell out. So you had to go in your room. So this one place in locality had a fire escape. So here's three big guys, they had giants going down the steps trying to sneak out. We snuck out, had a ball in the bar room. Yeah. Came back, and uh, the guy at the head of the pharmacy assistant was Charlie Wagner. He calls us all three, and he says. Uh, where the hell guy, where you guys were? He knew where we went. We went to the goddamn club and got ourselves drunk. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we got back and uh, they didn't penalize us. He just let us know that, hey, we caught you. <laughs> Once again, John Piella here with Butch Hafner. Now, you know, you mentioned Raditz. Do you, do you think in, in regards to off, off the field, hanging out, socializing, do you think he might have been the the, cra- the craziest player in regards to who you dealt with, or was there somebody even more even more out there than him? No, I think he was he was in the world of his own. I'm sorry, you know, when you're when you're having a good year like he is, you can get away with a little bit more. Of course. And I'm his roommate. I used to say, "Roomie, I can't do your happy horseshit. I'm here worrying from one year to the next." But Dick, he was all fun. The only thing I can say is when he put the uniform on. He was all business. And when they gave him that name, the monster, like I said, uh, he brought his family. He came to Allentown two or three times. Uh, that's when I was living on 18th and Liberty Street. I used to take him out with the guys, and actually when I bring a guy down like this, everyone, everyone thought I was God. Yeah, you know, I went to Tubby Witters. I went to these different places, and everyone goes, oh, why didn't you bring him into my place? But Dick was, uh, he treated me well, because like I said, I was only making so much, and Dick, didn't like you go out that much in the restaurants, so you usually get room service. His favorite thing was cheeseburgers. Hey, cheeseburgers off the ass. But uh, he took good care of me because, like I said, I didn't have a pot to piss in, you know, when you're only making minimum wages. But uh, I thought he was real great. The other guy, when I was in Cleveland in spring training, the, another guy was really goofy, Louis Tion. Uh, yeah. Tion had a name, a nickname for everybody. He gave a nickname that he always came up with a name and it would be hung with you. And I was, I mean, I was just here in spring training. And actually, I got sent down to the uh, AAA. But in spring training, Tion was really a different monkey. He was super. Yeah, no question. Let's get John Fiala here with Bush Hefner. Now, after he left the Red Sox, you, know, you end up uh, getting back to the majors a little bit with the Indians, a little bit with the Angels. Uh, did you? Was there anything in particular you found difficult about sustaining success year in and year out, and you know having a, a longer career? Obviously, that was something that you you, know, you expected to do. That was your goal. But what in what in your own mind held you back from being able to accomplish that goal? 
Well, it's like anything else. You got to have when you get in a different organization to make your move. You got to have someone to like you. Now, I can't think of the, the manager that was with with Portland. Cleveland sent me Don, and I tell you one thing: don't ever volunteer. I was in San Diego, and they always told me I was making a big team. Okay, so I'm in the bullpen, farting around, and all of a sudden they said, "Bush, warm up. They want you to throw a few innings." Well, I went in for one and got my ass bombed. Wow. So I get Don, or he Tevis calls me in and says, uh, that last outing wasn't too good. You're going back to AAA. Uh, and I'm no. telling my wife, I'm going in, blah, blah, blah. So don't ever volunteer. Yeah, so you'd be thinking hindsight, maybe had you not gotten into that game, I would have been different. Yeah, because you know what? I say one thing. I had a guy, uh, oh, God. Lives in poverty and helped me out. Elmer Vallow. Elmer Vallow. There you go. He was our uh, coach out there. And boy, I tell you what, you know, you went to spring training. I never left spring training in better shape. He picked on me naturally. I was a homeboy around here. Yeah. He used it. I don't know if you ever did. There's a guy, the guy here is with a ball. And he rolls it this way and rolls that way. If it stops, you start all over for the count. <laughs> so anyway, he got me in good shape. And I tell you, they sent me down to or uh, Portland. And I had a hell of a year down in Portland. But the only trouble is, I can't give the manager's name. But he had a grudge against me. Uh, and he used to say, oh, they're calling this guy up. They're not calling you up. They would kind of throw it in your face. Yeah. So evidently, if you don't have a guy that likes you, <laughs> you're done. And this guy evidently just... I rubbed him, or he rubbed me the wrong way. If I wouldn't have had a good year out there, he would have sent me down lower. I know, in fact, he would have sent me lower. Now, when you know, when you when you finally decided to hang it up, what uh, what led to that decision? And did you did you feel like did you, did you feel like there was any chance afterwards that you were going to try to pitch again? Well, you know, I came home, I quit, I started working over at General Electric. My dad got me over there. And I thought to myself, ah, I'm going to have to work for a living. There's an old saying is, you don't hang around and be a baseball bum. You know, hang around, you see these, I remember, like I said, I'm bad on names, but I remember this guy, uh, Keith, Keith an hour or something like uh, that. Uh, great knuckleball pitcher. Yeah. He's in Triple A with the Cleveland organization. I thought, oh, he's like 15, 16 years in the minor leagues. I didn't want that happy worship. No, I hear Because I had kids, you know, I, my main decision is I did what I wanted to do. I had kids coming in. And one thing is, when you have kids and you see these different ball players, this kid goes to this, he goes to three different schools. And I thought to myself, I don't want that for my family. And which I'm glad because I quit. Came home, the, the kid went to one school, my kid graduated from Lehigh, which I thought it was a pat on my back. My daughter became a natural like anyone else, a housewife. So I thought to myself, I decided when I went out there to uh, California, I said, I had enough of this. Talked it over to the wife. I said to the wife, what do you think? She says, it's your decision. What do you want to do? I said, well, make sure the kid's going to be in school. We're going to call it quits. Uh, and then tell you, you know, once again, John Pielli here with Butch Hafner, 100-year anniversary of Fenway Park. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, 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 were, you were there, you know, honoring the 100 years of history in the stadium. What comes to your mind? Tell us a little bit about that experience of being part of it. I'll tell you one thing. The owners, they did one super job. You couldn't, it was first class from start to finish. You could all, I took my wife with me. 
and you get off the airplane, there's a chauffeur there waiting for you to take you to the hotel. First class, picks up your luggage, go there with a limousine, you get off, they wine and dine you, they send you to the, they brought you to the uh, Fenway, and what really changed at Fenway, they never had that fine dining upstairs. Man. That up there is out of sight. The only thing that was up there was Bob Yalt. It was a lot better. So you went up there, and it's great to see guys reminisce and brag about a lot of shit. And there was one guy there, I can't even think of his name. He wasn't in my era. He was so fat that we went in and put our shirts on. The buttons almost popped. <laughs> but I tell you, they did a super job up there, and they took care of whoever brought their wives. Well, it was nice there when we left the hotel. My wife, I didn't think they were going to get the same treatment that we got. But they had a motorcycle van that we went through every red light. And these cops, there was like six cops, stopped all the traffic, took you right to Fenway. That's awesome. So I was ready to tell my wife about it. And she said, God, don't even worry about it. We had the same treatment. Yeah. It was super close. Them guys did a super, super job. Yeah, I'll tell you, you're looking back at the history of that stadium. And obviously, you, you hit on it a little bit when you played. Uh, the caveats and the stuff that exists now didn't exist then. What was the biggest difference that you saw returning to Fenway Park? Now, you know, possibly, you know, possibly and I may, may or may not know this, uh, over, over the, the years since you played, since you were at the stadium, were you, have you, had you been to Fenway Park until you went there for the, uh, the anniversary? Nope, I never went back up. So no, I never went back up. I, uh, the last time I saw, I knew I was going to get traded when I left there in 65. Uh, I said goodbye to the, the 12 hot guy. And I said, you won't see me here next year. I'll be traded. And I knew it. Sure enough, you are. Yeah. He, he, he had that feeling, you know. The club hots and the engineer, you talk to each other. You know who's going to stay and who's not going to stay. Yeah, that's something that ends up happening. But listen, you, know, you, had, you had a good experience in the big leagues, and it was definitely great catching up with you and chatting. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you very much. John, thank you. There it is, Bob Hefner. Great spot there. Quick break, then finish up top 10 closers in Major League Baseball right now. Back after this. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to mtrradio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Ace's Empty Vlog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Ace's Empty Vlog. 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 Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Back to the closers, top 10 right now. Like I said, we're not factoring middle relievers. We're factoring the guys that right now are going to be pitching the ninth inning of the games for each respective teams. You know, particularly last year, it changes a lot. A lot of teams change closers due to ineffectiveness, injuries, stuff like that. But right now, I'm going with who are the 
you know, representatives of the 30 closers in Major League Baseball. Number 10 is a surprise, and I think a lot of people are going to kind of go at me a little bit, debate this. Neftali Feliz with the Rangers. I go with Feliz's track record, not his injury, not his transition to a starter that didn't work out. But here's definitely a debatable one. There's a little drop-off after number 11, after David Robertson and uh, Rafael Soriano, yada, yada, yada. But Neftali Feliz is a guy that certainly can be a top closer. He didn't give up a run in his nearly five innings last year. That doesn't mean anything. I'm going back to what he did in the 2011 season, leading the Rangers to the World Series. I think he's the 10th best closer in Major League Baseball. Doesn't have to throw a pitch right now. Obviously, once he throws a pitch, he's going to be judged by it, but I think he's going to be okay. Grant Balfour, Tampa Bay Rays, number nine. He's recovered from major arm injuries. He had his contract taken away by the Orioles because of a failed physical, but he's gotten better with age. 259 ERA, 30 saves, 72 Ks, 62 and two-thirds innings for Oakland in 2013. Jason Grilly of the Pirates, number eight. His story has been phenomenal, how he's, how he's come back the way he has. After 2012, I think it was a possibility he could have been a top-ten closer. He came through even better than that this past season. 270 ERA, 33 saves, 74 Ks, 50 innings in 2013. Number seven, Kenley Jansen of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's another pitcher that nobody gives any credit to. Uh, 188 ERA last year, 28 saves, but 111 Ks and 76 and two-thirds innings in 2013. Greg Holland of the Kansas City Royals, number six. 121 ERA, 47 saves, 103 Ks in 67 innings last season. Trevor Rosenthal, in my opinion, is number five with the St. Louis Cardinals. 263 ERA, three saves, 108 Ks in 75 and a third innings for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2013. Koji Uehara, number four. He was the best reliever in the entire game for the last two months of the season, including the playoffs. The numbers, they speak for themselves. 109 ERA, 21 saves, 101 Ks. Ks and 74 in the third innings for Boston last season. Joe Nathan, in my opinion, is number three. Uh, he seemed like he wasn't going to be the same pitcher, you know, after his Tommy John surgery. He proved naysayers wrong in 2013. 139 ERA, 43 saves, 73 Ks and 64 two-thirds innings in 2013. You could debate with me. Maybe you think Uahara is better. Maybe you think Holland and Jansen are better. I'm ready for it. Tweet at me at John underscore PLE. Obviously, you know who the top two are. To me, you got one and two, and there's a big drop off. Number two is obviously Araldis Chapman of the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, obviously, you can make a case that last season, maybe Chapman uh, for 2012 was better. Then Craig Kimbrell, who is number one. But listen, Kimbrell's in a league of his own. Chapman, 254 ERA, 38 saves, 112 Ks, 63 and two-thirds innings in 2013. Kimbrell's numbers, come on. 121 ERA to 50 saves, 98 Ks, 67 innings in 2013. Like I said, let the debate go on. Please tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Of course, check out all my articles on Bases Empty blog, johnpielli.com. Big thanks to my guest today. Big thanks to Daryl Hamilton for uh, you know speaking with me for a little bit. And, of course, Dave Schneck and Bob Hefner for giving me the opportunity to meet with them in person. Dave Schneck at the diner. Bob Hefner, of course, at the courtesy of his own house. So a lot of great things going on past ball show. All I want you to do, tune in to johnpielli.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'll give you updates on some of the upcoming shows. A lot of great guests coming up over the next couple months. See you next week, everybody. Chicago, the heartbeat of America, yesterday's Chevrolet.